to welcome everybody. We're going to start with a few minutes of sitting. So uh, I'll ring the bell and we'll begin.
So Maria, you might want to spotlight me. <clears throat> so interesting. Um, so we have uh, Zoom bombers dropping in, still a problem in our technologies, right? Um, but anyway, uh, welcome to everyone who's tuned in online. And um, I'm really, really happy to be here with you today doing inquiry. So I'm going to start us off with a Zen koan, and you can see maybe how it relates to what I'll talk about by the end, and also how the Zoom bombers might relate to what I'm talking about. So a student said to Master Ichu, please write for me something of great wisdom. Master Ichu picked up his brush and wrote one word, attention. The student said, is that all? The master wrote, attention, attention. The student became irritable. That doesn't seem profound or subtle to me. In response, Master Ichu wrote simply, attention, attention, attention. In frustration, the student demanded, what does this word attention mean? Master Ichu replied, attention means attention. So I like to think that this, uh, this word that is described in this koan attention is our apamata sort of logo, our mindfulness, um, which in Japanese is nen, but which uh, in the Pali canon is apamata. Uh, so this means uh, in the Japanese character, um, there's a, a symbol it's two, two characters that are put together to make this one character that means attention, mindful care. Um, and that is the character for uh, Shin, the heart, mind, whole being. And this character that comes up like a roof that means into this present moment, this era, this moment, this time. So that's bring, bringing your whole being into this present moment is our way of showing our attention. So last week, Flint talked a bit about Dogen's four embraces of offering kind speech, harmony in action, intimacy or relationality. So these uh, four methods of social relations or elements of sociality are mentioned in the Lotus Sutra. They go way back, probably predated even the Lotus Sutra. As Nishijima translated these in Dogen Shobogenzo, which is fascicle 45, the Bodhisattva Shishobo, first is free giving. He's going to define this. Free giving means not being greedy. Not being greedy means not coveting. Not coveting means, in everyday language, not courting favor. And he goes on to say, what is hard to change is the mind of living beings. By starting with a gift, we begin to change the mental state of living beings, after which we resolve to change them until they attain the truth. At the outset, we should always make use of free giving. This is why the first of the six paramitas, the practices of perfection, is dana paramita, the perfection of giving. The bigness or smallness of mind is beyond measurement. And the bigness or smallness of things is beyond measurement. But there are times when mind changes things and there is free giving in which things change mind. 
Second, kind speech means when meeting living beings, first of all, to feel compassion for them and to offer caring and loving words. We should praise those who have virtue and pity those who lack virtue. Through love of kind speech, kind speech is gradually nurtured. Whether in defeating adversaries or in promoting harmony among gentlefolk, kind speech is fundamental. And then he talks about the impact of that. To hear kind speech spoken to us directly makes the face happy and the mind joyful. To hear kind speech indirectly etches an impression in the heart and the soul. Remember, kind speech arises from a loving mind and heart, and the seed of a loving mind and heart is compassion. We should learn that kind speech has the power to turn around the heavens. It is not merely the praise of ability. Third, helpful conduct means utilizing skillful means to benefit living beings, high or low. For example, by looking into the distant and near future and employing expedient means to benefit them. People have taken pity on stricken turtles and taken care of sick sparrows. When they saw the stricken turtle and the sick sparrow, they did not seek any reward from the turtle and the sparrow. They were motivated solely by helpful conduct itself. Stupid people think that if we put the benefit of others first, our own benefit will be eliminated. This is not true. Helpful conduct is the whole Dharma. It universally benefits self and others. So we should benefit friends and foes equally, and we should benefit ourselves and others alike. If we realize this state of mind, the truth that helpful conduct neither regresses nor deviates will be helpfully enacted even in grass, trees, wind, and water. We should solely endeavor to save the foolish. Good advice. <clears throat> Cooperation, this is the fourth, um, what Flint talked about as uh, intimacy, um, means not being contrary. This was, this was such an interesting uh, take on this. Uh, on this sense of cooperation. It is not being contrary to oneself, oneself and not being contrary to others. <clears throat> the task of cooperation means, for example, concrete behavior, a dignified attitude and a real situation. In other words, it's not an abstract concept. The relations between self and others are, depending on the occasion, without limit. Kanchi says, the sea does not refuse water, therefore it is able to realize its greatness. Mountains do not refuse earth, therefore they are able to realize their height. Enlightened rulers do not hate people, therefore they are able to realize a large following. Remember, the sea not refusing water is cooperation. Remember also that water has the virtue of not refusing the sea. For this reason, it is possible for water to come together to form the sea and for the earth to pile up to form mountains. Nishijima explains that this word for cooperation, it's translated as cooperation, means literally identity of task or sharing the same aim or more colloquially being in the same boat. This is much more obvious to us today in some ways because of the global nature of our circumstances and crises. We are in the same planetary boat, and clearly we need to cooperate to keep it afloat. 
So that's the uh, the basis in Nishijima's translation, anyway, of this uh, set of four embraces. Approaching these ideas from a contemporary perspective, recently I've read a new book called Stand Out of Our Light, Freedom and Resistance in the Attention Economy. It's by James Williams, who was a former Google advertising executive, who left his high-tech job to get a PhD in philosophy at Oxford. He became so troubled by the ethical consequences of the decisions that were being made at at these um, large uh, tech platforms. So in the book, he presents the concept, which I think was first described in the book Peak Mind, that attention takes different forms, like three forms of light. The first he calls spotlight, which is our focus on the task at hand. So this is what we commonly think of as attention. I'm paying attention to what I'm working on. Starlight is the aspiration that guides us, guides our behavior and reflects our deepest intention. Daylight is the broad awareness in in which everything manifests as it really is. So the distractions in our lives interfere with, displace or even destroy these three forms of light. This is the premise of the title of the book. Producers of technological distractions deliberately obscure all three forms of light with powerful psychological hooks to keep us engaged and often outraged. Our sense of the task at hand, our spotlight, is interrupted by notifications, internet rabbit holes, clickbait, things to buy. Our starlight, our aspiration, is obscured and derailed by clouds of competing demands for our aspirational attention, entertainment, social media, online debates, doubt, bewilderment by the array of it all. Our compromised sense of daylight makes it impossible to even recall what we most want or even what to want in a fog of information, disinformation, distrust, dismay, despair at the state of the world, cruelty and ignorance. Even when our own world, our own particular world, the world we're inhabiting right now, seems to be going well. So in the book, Williams does not offer much help in the way of solutions to our sea of distractions and fog of confusion, much of which has been cynically fostered by corporate interests, political manipulators, and malign spreaders of disinformation and manufactured outrage. But I was encouraged because we have a powerful antidote to these toxic forces in the three foundations of Zen, the practice of meditation, which provides a space apart from the distractions of screens and the demands of everyday roles and responsibilities to pause and reflect, to gain a clearer comprehension of what our life is about moment to moment, here and now. The second foundation is ethical conduct, which guides our social relating in ways that are upright, dignified, honest, trustworthy and caring. This is the basis for mutual care. The third foundation is wisdom, which provides a compass for discerning what is beneficial, wholesome, conducive to genuine happiness and leading to liberation. This comes from deep insight into the truths of the Buddha's teachings, especially about the causes of suffering and its cessation. In other words, Our Zen practice is a necessary protection for our attention in an environment filled with hostile dangers to it. Dogen's four embraces, in turn, require a clear, free, unobstructed, 
and undistracted mind and heart. We might ponder for ourselves the extent to which our technologies actually provide, as Flint mentioned, consolation, contentment, comfort, and delight. So we must now make our home in this technologically permeated environment. Even preppers going off the grid use solar generators to get online where they research survival skills, shop for provisions, and connect with other preppers for support and guidance. So what can we do? We should take good care of our practice, our path, and our vow, and we can support each other in that aspiration. Through the marvels of technology, we can connect online to practice together and to support each other. No one wants to abolish that capacity. Now we must become wise stewards of our attention. One teacher famous, famously said, we should pay attention to what we, are, what we pay attention to, which I think is such great advice. The Buddha taught his disciples to guard the mind, guard the sense doors, because we've evolved so recently out of conditions of information lack, we're kind of dazzled by its abundance. But like a starving person at a lavish feast, we can't stop filling our plates, grabbing bits and pieces of this and that and stuffing ourselves. <clears throat> this is not a healthy way to live. We need to take mindful care of our minds and hearts. What we consume to keep them healthy is just as important as our mindful consumption of food, our mindful care of our relationships, our mindful attention to our work in the world. Just like comprehending the seduction of constant advertising for junk food, the false economy of convenience, the environmental damage of corporate food production, the denial of harmful consequences in mindless overeating, we must also be aware of the allure of distractions that take our attention away from our work, which, as Mary Oliver explained, is loving the world. The word sati, often translated as mindfulness in the Buddha's teachings, literally translated as we often taught, means to recall. What we recall is not only who we are, but where our aspiration can direct our attention, our light in the world, where we are going. In the intensive, Todd talked about this in relation to the four Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes of loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. The Buddha taught the practice of the Brahma-viharas as simply radiating these qualities in all directions. They do not require an object worthy or unworthy any more than sunlight does. Their practice is not confined to meditation or contemplation. Rather, they are simply radiated through everything you think, say, or do. Every thought, word, text message, emoji, email, tweet, gesture, facial expression, body language, Zoom appearance, and nonverbal communication, as well as every action. We are always conveying something. What is it that we are actually radiating? The corollary to this practice I've often taught is to sit experiencing the ways in which we are receiving from all directions at all times, loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. We are constantly bathed in it, whether we're aware of that or not. We sit together in sati, 
to recall our attention to what matters to loving the world and everything in it, including our own bumbling selves. Who we are is precisely the light of our attention, our spotlight attention on the task at hand, our starlight attention to our guiding aspiration, our daylight attention aware of the whole cosmos and what there is to want, be, and do in it. The corrective to the destruction of our attention, both individually and collectively, is our practice, our path, and our vow. This vow takes time and effort, willingness and persistence. It also takes courage in the face of the many forces competing for that scarce resource. So let's use it well. At the end of Sunday service, we're offered an admonition. Let us be respectfully reminded Life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes by and with it our only chance. Each of us must strive to awaken. Be aware, do not squander our life. So sharing this moment of our life together, let's hear your questions or reflections, uh, recalling that this, this inquiry is how we bring forth the Dharma together. I'm very interested in uh, and what you're attending to and how it's moving in you. So I think um, you can raise your hand if you, Judith. Oh. <laughs> <coughs> Having been in Austin two weeks ago, I had a sort of, um, well, I'm calling it a breakthrough experience for whatever, <laughs> you know, these things don't have words, aren't easily expressed in words, as you know. And I'm sitting here today falling asleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and trying big We can't hold on anything. <laughs> and and try, struggling very, very hard not to judge that, you know, okay, I'm yeah. sleepy today. Um, sleepy Buddha. <laughs> a sleepy booty, yes, 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 yes. So um, I want it to be okay for me to be sleepy while I'm with you today. Absolutely. And it's wonderful to be here again as always, as always. Thank you so much, Peg. <laughs> you know, that's another koan where the master was sick, almost dying. And his disciple came and said, how is it with you? How are you today, master? And the master said, sun face Buddha, moon face Buddha. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I have the moon and the sun mixed up today, though. <laughs> yeah, as I, we often say if you haven't fallen asleep on the cushion in Zazen, you probably haven't been practicing very long. Oh, well. <laughs> I have to say it hasn't been quite this much of a struggle for a long time. But, yeah. And then I'm reminding myself, uh, this too will pass, you know. It's usually, yeah. sleepiness is usually a sign, can be a sign of several things. One, you're actually genuinely sleep deprived and tired. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, one, you're completely and utterly relaxed. And um. 
Um, and that's when it becomes clear how much you've been trying to do, you know, how much you've been doing. So you, you slow down, you stop, and you feel the, that tiredness mm -hmm. overtake you, you know. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that, that um, tiredness in Zazen is a, itself a distraction from something disturbing that's starting to emerge. That, uh, uh, so maybe, maybe a memory or a physical sensation mm -hmm. or something, you know. And, uh, and it's a way, it's a protection that our mind throws up. Yeah. So that's worth exploring. It's worth investigating. Yes. Okay. I, I shall be about that during this next week. <laughs> Good. Good. So, Joel. Uh, hi, Peg. It's wonderful to see you again. Wow, it's great it was to wonderful. see you to see you this weekend and and I, I really enjoyed your comments about Todd's talk from the intensive which was very moving to me and very powerful yeah. um, I want to ask about you you were describing the three modes of, of attention uh, spotlight daylight and starlight and I have I have a strong experience of, of, of this spotlight sense that that is present with me all the time and, and mostly I think of it in terms of kind of things that I'm missing because I'm not looking straight at them mm -hmm. you know, or, or, or that that sort of way I, I I feel a kind of peripheral FOMO exactly peripheral <laughs> perfect and I have a sense of, of daylight and awareness uh, appreciative awareness of the world but but what I don't have what what I want to ask about is for a, for you to spend some time talking about starlight awareness. I I feel like I don't have the um, I don't know. I just don't have a, a good understanding of that, and I really want more of it. So yeah, talk more about that. <laughs> yes, uh, of course. Um, I talk about it endlessly. I talk about it all the time, actually. But uh, looks like other topics. It's, it's that, um, what I would call like the North Star, which you can always orient yourself toward. Um, we, we have various descriptions of it, um, the Bodhisattva vow, the precepts, um, but it's, um, and sometimes um, Flint will talk about it as your inmost request. Um, and we have a sense of disconnect when we're not in alignment with that deepest heartfelt aspiration. So we get unraveled, we get disoriented, we don't know what we're supposed to do, you know. Um, and sometimes when we are absolutely in complete alignment with that aspiration, what we do in a situation will look surprising to the other people in the situation, right? And yet it'll be appropriate to the situation. So. My, if we're trying to think, what should I do now? What should I do now? What's the right thing to do? Um, we're not attuned to that deep, deep aspiration. It's what keeps our feet on the path um, because we have a sense that this, um, the construction of this tradition is really de designed to help us stay in alignment with our deepest aspiration and to express and manifest that in the world. So it's a, um, it's a very, um, to me, very, very effective kind of design because in sitting in this open spacious awareness, um, 
we, we have the opportunity then to connect with that starlight, that deep aspiration. So when you have uh, a child, you have a heartfelt natural aspiration for that child to be well, <clears throat> to be happy, to be safe, right? Nobody has to tell you, a parent should actually hope for their child to be well and happy and safe, you know? It's just um, all of your efforts are in alignment with that aspiration. Um, so I think um, in our practice, we're continually exploring what is the shape of that aspiration. It's not an abstract concept. It's not even probably something most people can put in words, but they can tell when they're in alignment with it, everything sort of points the same way. And when you're cross purposes with it, you kind of tell, oh yeah, you know, I kind of, you know, I, uh, I told that friend I was busy. I just didn't want to get together, you know, um, <clears throat> or whatever. You sense a little disconnect. That's, uh, there's an uncomfortable or this little bit of distress that that creates, right? So that, um, so while we're following that North Star, and I think when we're young, that North Star is usually represented by a parent, you know, or maybe some idea about God and, um, and we, it's external to us, right? It's something we're aiming toward um, or orienting outside of ourselves. And this is the, the backward step that Dogen talks about to shine the light within. So maybe your deepest aspiration is to work with um, injured animals, you know? Uh, maybe your deepest heartfelt aspiration is to help the homeless. Um, that's all manifestation of your Buddha nature in the world. Does that make sense? Almost certainly, I'm just guessing, but almost certainly that aspiration is not make piles and piles of money. Um, right? It, it, it's almost certain that that's not really your heartfelt aspiration. So people have a lot of markers that are themselves distractions from that true nature. So um, so this is what James Williams discovered in his work at Google. He was not following that starlight, right? And what he saw around him was disturbing enough that he decided, I have to find out more about this. I have to find out more about the nature of attention. And he did it through philosophy. There are lots of people pursuing that in psychology and neuroscience and other domains. I mean, there's lots and lots of you know, books coming out now about this and about the distraction economy and all of that. Um, but I like that, um, that frame for it because there's this larger daylight within which things become visible. Um, and if that's occluded, then even it's even hard to tell what you should aspire to, right? So people get in caught in this um, uh, materialistic consumer uh, what do they call it? The, um, the hedonic treadmill. Mm. They're continuing to try and find things that give them pleasure. And they're caught, right? They've lost the, the starlight. They've lost the daylight because they don't even know what's an appropriate thing to want, right? So, so that's what I think of as that, um, that sort of starlight by which we see, oh, it's really important to take care of people who are suffering. That's really important. Now, uh, a new boat, not, not that important, right? 
So, so I think that um, I think meditation is a wonderful practice for getting realigned with what your starlight is. See, oh, what I'm the way I'm spending my time does not reflect my deepest aspiration. Oh, I see. Where I'm directing my attention does not reflect my deepest aspiration. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. You should be a mute. Thank you, Maria. Well, thank you, Maria. And thank you, Peg, for your for your teaching. It's so rich. I'm I'm so glad that this is being recorded because I will come back to it. I think at some point, perhaps in the context of offering, you mentioned receiving. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I look I had shoulder surgery and um I clearly need help, right? And it's been wonderful. People have been driving me to PT appointments and bringing food because I can't drive and I can't cook much, right? And what a gift. It has just, it, it, it's just felt, it's brought so much joy and good company. That's really what I've loved is the good company. And at the same time, I've noticed that I've been kind of um, driven by independence and it's as if so I have a drive towards it and it's a it's like just because I can do something and it's my own my own message it's not coming from anybody else I have to do it. Mm -hmm. and so during the retreat at open door this weekend it was live someone asked me to if I want if I needed help with my couple you know like shopping bags I said, no, that's okay. I can do it myself. And I could. And this very kind person said, I'm going to do this for you. <laughs> and it was like an opening that I, on some level, I knew it and I've experienced before. But I think maybe because of this situation, I experienced it so much more deeply. Um, it was an opening into letting people help is a gift and it's an act of generosity mm -hmm. and i just wanted to share that because i'm feeling it so profoundly and um it touches a real vulnerability in me you know? we have barriers to receiving right and a lot, some of them are cultural you know this uh uh idea that we should be independent and that we shouldn't need other people and, uh, and we should be strong. Yeah. Right. Especially I think for women of our era. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're the ones who help others. We don't need help. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and there's a kind of, I feel a kind of defiance, like, no, you, you're not going to tell me that I can't do this because right. I'm a woman. Right. Yeah, so you're seeing all this uh, conditioning that surrounds the right. receiving of uh, care, right? Mm -hmm. And we're all going to need care from others, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's the condition of living. Mm -hmm. So the more we can uh, offer others the opportunity, because we know how heart opening it is to care for others. We know how heart opening it is to be generous. Right. And right. now we're providing the occasion for others to have that experience. Right. 
right? And it didn't occur to me how stingy I was being. <laughs> Isn't it funny? You know, it, yeah, yeah. It seems yeah. backwards. So it, yeah, it seems backwards, right? Yeah. So um, thank you for letting me voice that because yeah. uh, that's part of the learning. Well, it's a wonderful teaching mm-hmm. wow. for everyone. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Good luck in your recovery. Thank you. One week I should be able to drive. Yay. Yay. <laughs> but you might still let people drive you somewhere. I may, and I and I will still need help. Yes, yeah, great. Need help. That's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We have Kathy next, yeah. I'm noticing that I'm feeling a lot of gratitude here lately. I'm so thankful for inquiry. I'm so thankful to be with you here. Um, And for what Kathy just expressed and for Joel's question. Joel's question just really landed uh, profoundly with me and your response with it. Um, What I'm... I guess the reason I raised my hand is uh, noticing about me paying attention, noticing how I listen or noticing how I don't listen is really more, <laughs> more the subject here. Of uh, That shows awareness though. Um, and otherwise we're just blundering along, not listening, but you're aware that there are times when you're not listening. Yeah. Just like in the middle of something I'm interested in, start making a list about something that's not, you know, not even what I'm interested in at that moment yeah. is, you know, and um, we've been trained to be distractible. Yeah. And when you said distraction economy, I was just like, oh, my God, there's a distraction economy. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I hadn't even thought of that before. And I was just like, wow, that's making a lot of money. Yes, it is. Um, so, um I, uh, I guess, you know, like part of the focus of this is uh, um, doing some stuff with the clearness committee mm-hmm. and uh, how there's uh, like kind of really training to listen and how, you know, I'm noticing that my companions in there, like uh, both from whatever I've shared when they give feedback back, I'm just like, oh, you know, I said some certain word like, you know, seven times throughout a 10 minute, you know, talk and, and be very surprised that that word was like said that often. Mm-hmm. And then when it's my turn to be the listener, then not, um, not, not feeling like I'm capable of doing what, what my companions who've had more training are doing. It, and just sort of noticing that, that, um, you know, even in, like they're, you know, taking notes the whole time and in their kind of listening role. And I'm not, that's, that's, that's new to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's the training and listening then, right? Yeah. So it's great that you're doing it because you're going to, you're going to hone that capacity. And with experience and practice, you're going to have that depth of listening that you aspire to. That's one of your starlights, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I really want to, you know, it sounds like such a silly sentence of I'd like to be in the present moment. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have an alternative, actually. 
well, I have alternative attempts that are pretty consistent or constant, <laughs> but you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that, you know, reality always wins, you know. Well, you know, we're either in the present moment distracted and uh, unaware of it, or we're in the present moment unaware of it, but we're nevertheless in the present moment. We don't have an alternative. Yeah. It's Thanks. as you know, with like with, it, with taking a picture, it's that moment. It's just that moment. There isn't, you know, you're, you're going to take the picture that's in front of you. Yeah. 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 And and it's, it's your foot because you're just adjusting the camera, you know, like. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there is no recreating that. You know, no. the light's never going to be the same. The moment's never going to be the same. There is no, you know, going back on that at all. That's what's in the caution. You know, time swiftly passes by and with it our only chance. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, of course, brought home to me quite vividly in watching my granddaughter growing up. You know, like this three and a half moment is never going to come again because now she's three and three quarters. Now she's going to be four, you know, in uh, just a couple of weeks. And I'm, I'm thinking... How this all happen so fast? It's like a speeded up movie, you know? Yeah, yeah. My uh, my neighbors have a puppy, and you know, it's like you know, I met the puppy at eight weeks old. Now the puppy is like twelve weeks old, and it's a completely different puppy. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. really, really, really growing, and it's yeah. our moments are like that, um, and they're not even moments because they're in the stream of things, right? So you're just um attending to what you attend to in that stream in that stream it's like it's like a big flood right there's a sofa going by there's a dresser there's a fish swimming past you there's a branch and what are you paying attention to mm -hmm. what are you what are you noticing in that stream yeah yeah, yeah. So, thanks a lot Peg. <laughs> thank you cassie <laughs> jessica um i'm so really see you it's so, so good to see you <laughs> <laughs> i'm really intrigued by what you just said that we've been trained to be distractible can you say more about that how how i mean apart from social media how how have we been trained to be distractible well, even before that, um, with television and cutting stories up to give to interrupt them with commercials, um, yeah. on radio even interrupting a story to you know advertise something. This goes pretty far back. Um, mm. The way our attention is different, even in print newspapers, a story will be stopped and then come started on another page where there's other advertising, yeah. right? So um, we've been conditioned all along to be distractible. And this is why, why teachers have fits, right? But pay attention to your work, pay attention to your work. Pay, but we've every, all of our, everything in our environment is working to distract us. And some of it is intentional and some of it is just the fact that we live in a rich environment. So if you're out in nature, there's all, all kinds of things to pay attention to, right? Yeah. So, but we have been conditioned um, through and particularly through technologies deliberately, we've been conditioned to be distractible because that brings ad revenue. So. Um, so that's, it's highly motivated. Uh, mm -hmm. And as a result, um, at least well, I saw a big shift in this, my students, even before I retired, where they didn't have the capacity to pay attention to something for any extended period of time. Mm -hmm. 
So I actually had a student say in one of my classes, and mind you, I only had upper division students, juniors and seniors. This is a senior student. And she said, you know, my roommate grew up without any technology and she can read a book. I can't read a book. I wish I could. Mm. And I thought this was stunning to me. You know, she's, she's at the end of her college career and she can't read a book. Yeah, how did she get that far? <laughs> well, that was my question. And, 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 it, and I found out a little bit when I said to a colleague, I don't understand it. My students always say in my course evaluations that they wish we could have discussed the books that I assign more. But every time I would ask them, you know, a question about the reading, this is crickets, you know, like, do you want to talk about these themes or, you know, just crickets. And my colleague said to me, oh, when they say they wish you had, would discuss the book in class, they mean, would you tell them what it's about? So they don't <laughs> so I thought this was um, this was very telling to me, but there's a lot of this because uh, you know that kids are growing up distracted by their phones and um, and by social media. Yeah, and so much I'm I'm noticing for myself so much of it is visual because oh. I can listen to a story for hours, but I, I also can't. I've lost the ability to read a book. <laughs> It's true. And, and uh, you know that 80% of our cognitive processing is our visual field. So um, that's so much of our awareness is tied up in the visual. Mm. Um, at least for those of us who have vision, you know, it's not true for blind people, it's more auditory and other senses. But, um, but we're, that's why anything, any little bit of movement catches our attention. Oh, yes, right? of course. Yeah, and so people have to be, I think people have to be quite vigilant about turning off notifications because it jerks their attention away. And then, and then there's a cognitive cost and coming back and getting reoriented to where you are and more and more people are not willing to pay that cost. Yeah, yeah. You end up going down some rabbit holes and the next thing you know, you know, reading about whatever, the Swiss guard or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. great. Thank you, that's really, really helpful. Thank yeah, you. that's why I thought it was really good advice to pay attention to what we're paying attention to. Um, because that's, you know, that's a sort of a doable inventory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. You are welcome. Well, good to see you. Rosemary. Hey, so nice to see you and thank you. And it was so nice to meet you as well. Um, so my question is about um, the Brahma-Vihara equanimity. And I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that. Um, Absolutely. So you, um, it's not a, uh, a state you jump to. When you have um, radiated loving kindness, when you have also felt compassion for the suffering beings of the world and the commitment to their uh, relief from suffering. And you've also participated in experiencing empathetic joy for the happiness that others are experiencing. You've moved through all these emotion states, right? Or these experiences, human experiences. You arrive at this sense of equanimity, which is the ability to hold everything. <clears throat> and um, I think of it, you know, um, my sister described this in, in a kind of interesting way where she said, it's like being the pole in the center of a field and everybody is doing all everything they're doing, running around all running, but you're holding that center. 
Um, and there's a sense of steadiness in it because you're not rocked by uh, waves of conditioning, right? And you're not caught up in um, uh, emotions that take you out of your connection with others or your present moment experience. So when the Buddha talked about the advantages of dispassion, which is sort of the ally of equanimity, he wasn't saying don't have feelings, but he was helping us recognize the ways in which we get tangled up and really lose our sense of our bearings uh, when we get emotional. So there's a kind of liberation when we're not tangled up in reactive emotionality. It's not, you know, it doesn't mean you're not going to be devastated and sad when you lose someone you love. It means you're not going to pile on top of it a bunch of conditioned thrashing around and expectations of yourself and others that don't that aren't really part of that um, genuine experience. So when my mother died, which was very impactful, lots of people came up to me and said, "Oh, I'm so sorry, you know." And I, 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 you must be devastated. And I made a vow to myself that I was going to pay very close attention to what I was actually experiencing rather than what other people expected me to experience or what even I expected me to experience. And so there were all these rich and complex gifts that included relief, that included you know, some uh, sense of closure, that included, you know, th there was just this complex set of moving, ongoing, flowing emotions that came out of our complex relationship. So the equanimity was the capacity to look at that flow and not believe any of it as the total story. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. It sounds like maybe filtering out some of those expectations. Um, Bracketing them, like, yeah, you know, um, uh, so many people expected me to feel a certain way or to express grief in a certain way. And those ex expectations can be quite a source of suffering in themselves. Even though people think they're being helpful or consoling. So it's a question of attunement in the relationship. Does the person actually um, need consoling? Do they act, are they actually, you know, um, inviting that connection um, or are you simply displacing your anxiety onto the you know onto the person through you know these social gestures yeah i i recently was um had a um situation where i was feeling upset about something and it was hurtful and but i didn't think that it was about the thing that had happened and um i decided to try to um, um, include everyone in the world that might be having this same kind of reaction and suffering the same way and um, receive all of that in. And then including my own suffering right. at the time. And I'll have to, I have to remind myself because when I do that receiving, then I often don't remember to include myself. So. Right. That's very important. And then sending out love to everyone that suffered in this way, including myself. And that was that was a big help. And yeah. Yeah. So that's the practice. 
you know, yeah. to recognize, oh, this is a um, common human sensation. And there are all of the others. Um, I'll do that when I do meta practice. If I wake up in the middle of the night and I have some sort of whammies or something, I'll do meta practice for myself. So I'm awake and I wish I could be asleep and I'm worried about stuff. And then I, um, and then I think about all the other people who are awake right now because they lost their job, because their daughter's on drugs, because, you know, whatever, their son was in a car accident. All the reasons that people are lying awake at night and I feel this sort of communion, right? So I send meta to all the people who are awake at night, just like I am. Um, so that's, that can be, that can be quite helpful because it connects you and yeah. so you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, okay, thank you so much. Yeah, you are welcome. Penelope. And I know we're almost out of time, but I just wanted to say uh, when you were talking about the distractions uh, for us and uh, how prevalent they are in the world, I know when I was 18, I read uh, the book, The Affluent Society. Mm -hmm. And that changed my life because I, I I still remember vividly that was the first time I realized that the corporations were manipulating us with the planned obsolescence. Uh, and it was just like a veil went up that, you know, so talk about a long time. I mean, it's it's just been building. And then when, like you say, the internet came along. Yeah. You see that the same companies, corporations that are selling war material are also selling the rebuilding and re reconstruction after war. It's like both ends of the, of the spectrum that they, they're holding, you know? So, so I think um, reclaiming our attention is, is a revolutionary act. It is an act of resistance. And that's another, you brought up so many good things today when you talked about, don't be contrary because as an artist, I've always been contrary. You know, I've always been pushing against uh, the norm or So it's a, it's, you know, it's that edge that that's what makes you have art or makes you make art. You know, if you weren't on the edge, you wouldn't be making and have anything to say. But so- Hogan was really referring to creative expression. He was referring to our relationships with each other. Yes, but see that, in other words, what I what, what spoke to me was, oh, maybe my contrariness has not been loving in some times. See, in other words, like, yeah, it's reframed it for me. It said like, well, wait a minute. No, when you just thought you were being contrary and it was good reaction, maybe it was hurtful to some people. Yeah, it's it, it's a um, it's a, can be a fixed view like anything else, and that is something that Buddha did really teach um, in opposition to fixed views. So if you have a fixed stance like that, I will be contrary. Um, sometimes you've had to do it to protect your independence of mind. Um, but then you know, as we mature, we realize nobody is really um, uh, interfering with your independence of mind. You own that exactly. <laughs> but thank you for bringing that up. It was okay. Now we have to stop. I see <laughs> at the end of our time, but so great to see you. Good to see you. We'll do our, our last chant. Um, as we, uh, as we recognize the self-centered dream partly as composed of our distractions.
caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding the self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding the self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding the self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Thank you, it's been such a great pleasure being with you today. And I, I love this process of inquiry and the wonderful questions you brought. Thanks to everybody who came forward. It was really a delight. Thank you so much, Peg. Thank you. Um, and thank you all so much for being here and creating this, this wonderful space that, that we have. And um, as you all know, Appamada's um, programs, Appamada and its programs are supported by all of your generosity and all the ways that you contri contribute. And if you'd like to offer Dana to teachers such as Peg and uh, Flint and other teachers, I can see Laurie and Joel are here this evening. And oh, no, it's not this evening, is it? It's, uh, <laughs> it's your afternoon. It's my evening. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Todd and, and to other events at Appamada, um, please do go to the um, website appamada.org forward slash contribute and there you'll see opportunities to, to offer Dana. And you'll also, if you check out the calendar while you're there, there's lots of wonderful events on there that you're all welcome to uh, come and see what they're, what they're about. So thank you all so much. And if you'd like to, oh, sorry, Peg. <laughs> thank you, Maria. Oh, thank you, Peg. Yeah. And if you'd like to continue to meet and share, um, please do join myself for a further 25 minutes and on the virtual porch and we'll carry on the conversation that uh, Peg's begun. So thank you all so much. Mm -hmm.